Father, I know I could not imagine, Lord, singing that song if it had been my four daughters out in sea, lost. But Lord, I pray and ask in the name of Jesus this morning that uh, you would deepen our relationship with you as you lead us into the word in Psalms. That, Father, you do a work deep in our hearts as we worship, as we listen, that our walk with you would be so deep that it could sustain any blow, that we would sing, it is well with my soul, because the Lord is good, even when we grieve. So, Lord, do something in us as a community, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to uh, Psalm 57. Psalm 57, and we are on this series, Gather, Grow, Give, Go, Glorify, which is our church vision. And now glorify, which is the, the center of that baseball diamond. And we're doing a series on the book of Psalms and being a worshiping, singing community. Singing and worshiping in our journey with God. Now God built us for Sabbath keeping. He built your soul. He wired you in such a way that you and I are to have a rhythm in our lives. That we work six days. But the culmination of our week is gathered around worship and singing to the living God, corporately as a people. And that's why when you're out of sync and out of corporate worship and you miss it for a while, you know, you find out, boy, I feel far from God. And all of a sudden, you don't even have much of a desire to sing or read scripture or hear the word and you find out your thoughts are just way out from God because you were built and designed to gather together like this in a corporate community and to worship the living God. Even though everything in your flesh may not want to be here, deep inside you are made by God to sing. That's why we all love music here, different types of music. But the music for which you were wired above all else was for God. And we'll find your deepest joy and gladness in truly engaging in God and worship. But it's a challenge. Now, as I said earlier, uh, we have a couple of medical students here and one told me again last week, the prenatal studies they do on babies in the womb, they, they have music playing in prenatal units. And elderly, you go to nursing homes and Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's patients, they will do music therapy with them because of the power of music. Even though they may have lost their minds or ability to think, music somehow touches them deep and moves them uh, in their healing process. And, uh, and we're all influenced by music. And again, as it's been said, every culture in the world has music. Every religion has music and singing because it was given by God. But it was given by God for us to sing to the true and living God in, in worship. Now, music, for those of us who are, tend to be very on the intellectual side and rational side, music gets to us at a level beyond the intellect. Again, it's not anti-intellectual, but it gets to something deep in our soul. The soul is the essence of who we are. And that's why music, or, or psalms, have been called a, psalms have been called the music of the soul. It touches something deep, deep within us. Now, the psalms were intended to be sung. That's why it's a bit of a, you know, I'm, we're, we're preaching them, and we're analyzing them, but this is all poetry. And it was meant that we'd read it, then we'd sing it. And in fact, it's all filled with little musical stops, and like you'll see this word, Selah, S-E-L-A-H, Selah, in the middle of a psalm, Selah. And uh, that was, we don't know exactly what it meant, but it was either instructions to the choir to sing, or instructions to the musicians to do an instrumental piece. We're not quite sure what Selah means. But remember, this was all poetry and songs to be sung, gathered in about 400 B.C., they took 150 of the best songs, greatest hits, in a sense, that 
that captured all of human experience. And they took these 150 and they became scripture, 73 written by David. And that's why Psalms, when you read them, and they're the most popular of all books to be read, the, the older you get, the more you love the Psalms. The more you suffer, the more you love the Psalms. That's why you can read a Psalm a hundred times or a thousand times, go through a difficult experience, you read it again, and for the first time you understand it. They are so rich, rich so profound, that uh, really they, they, they do, they overwhelm us. I, I spent a day this week, and in one, I said, let me do it in one shot. And I read all 150 in one shot. And I just, and I started analyzing them. You know, what, what type it is and all that. And honestly, by the time it was over, I, I was just, I was floored. I was just overwhelmed. I, I couldn't, I couldn't my, my, my being could not absorb anymore. But what was so striking was how many of these psalms are laments. Or com lament means complaint. I mean, they say a third to a half, uh, easily a half, are complaints to God. And as you'll see in just a moment, that's very, very significant. Now, a lot of you have been throwing me worship books. I've got a stack now. I may open up a used bookstore. Uh, but one that I did collect on myself was written by a theologian, and the title of it is Worship is a Royal Waste of Time. Royal because when we worship and sing to God, we are engaging in with something royal. God's our king, and the, it's something that's the kingdom of God, so it's royal. But humanly speaking, it's a total waste of time. I mean, it's not productive, it's not very efficient, you're not getting anything done, you're not making any more money, you're not, you're not getting up in the world, you're not, if you're artistic or an instrumentalist or singer, you're not advancing your career either. And it looks like a waste of time, but it's a royal waste of time. And it's glorious. There's all kinds of things that happen to us in worship, which will come out in the weeks to come in messages, but, but it's very powerful. But humanly speaking, for you to come together in your life and knock out this time and worship God, Seems like a total waste of time. It is just a royal waste of time. As we lavish love on God, the true king of kings. And it's a statement. But it's tough to worship. And I know for many of us in this room, this is, it's tough to engage in worship. And it's be, it is because I believe part of the reason is it does seem like such a waste of time. And your friends and neighbors and co-workers, here you are on a Sunday or in your community during a week or a small group, and here you are worshiping in your devotional time. You say, I've got so many things to do. What am I doing wasting my time worshiping? But God does call us to waste our lives, to die to our ego, to die to our plans, to die to our accomplishments, to die to our purposes, and worship Him. That's why I believe it's difficult for us to worship and to take the time to remain in His presence. Because it really is a death to ourselves. And it seems so foolish by everything that screams, all the voices that scream at us, around us. So, all right, now different scholars, put the overhead up, and different scholars, as I've said earlier, break up the Psalms differently. Now, yeah, the center of what it means to be a community of God's people is worship. For Israel... They were singing, worshiping people. And the Psalms are right in the smack center of the Bible, all 150 songs, because it's at the center of what it meant to be a believer, what it meant to be part of God's people. That you weren't just an individual believer walking out there in your own your apartment, but you're part of a community, we're a local community, uh, believers, that sings and worships to the living God in the midst of a world that does not sing and worship to Him. And it's, it's, it's part of our identity. And that's why it's part of your discipleship, to be learning and growing to engage and focus your heart and mind to sing and worship God. Now, go down, because there's different types. Let's put all types down. And, and we talked about there's different types of psalms, and uh, scholars and commentators will divide up types of psalms differently. And uh, this is my division into seven types. Um, some have five, some have nine, but uh, I'm going to use seven, and I'm going to preach through all seven uh, here on the Sunday morning. But if you remember, we did Psalm 96, which was, number one, a processional and enthronement psalm. And we got a number of psalms that are like that. 
the processional marching to the temple and throning the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Remember that Psalm 96? Last week we did a Thanksgiving Psalm, Psalm 103. There is, there is another type called Thanksgiving and Adoration Psalms. And, and uh, in fact, in Leviticus, there is something called a thank offering. They'd offer it in the temple. But, there are, but songs of thanksgiving are considered thank offerings to God. Very interesting. Another topic. Then there are Psalms of Lament, which is what we're going to start today. And it's, Psalms of Lament are so rich, I, I need three weeks for it, the Psalms of Lament. Again, because half the Psalter is laments. And there's so much in that. Um, that I can just, I'm actually exploding up here, can't notice it, but I am, because there is so much in this lament thing, it's so overwhelming, and, and unless you get the laments, you really can't do the rest. You'll only do the rest when you feel like it. Or you'll do hallelujah and repentance and trust and, and throw them, but you'll, you'll be kind of superficial. Unless you learn to complain, some of you are very good at it, but complaining the right way, complain to God in lament, praise, worship, the rest of it doesn't really quite fly. So there's laments. Then there's psalms of trust, which we'll get to. Uh, then there's repentance psalms. Psalms of trust would be like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We love that. Then repentance psalms, like Psalm 51. Wisdom psalms, which are kind of like the book of Job. They're, they're psalms that are, are full of wisdom, almost like teaching psalms. They're, they're reiterating truth that we live by. And then there's hallelujah psalms, which are so, psalms about the poor and the oppressed and God's heart for the widow and the orphan. So we'll get to all of them. But the key thing to understand is this. There's all these different types of psalms because... God intends that whatever you're going through in life, whatever suffering, loss, difficulty, high, low, in between, that your life is wrapped up and you bring it to God and it becomes a vehicle to worship. External circumstances are not to dominate your life. What dominates your life is worship to the living God. And through it all, you bring it to God like David did and it becomes a vehicle through which you worship. But you do have different types of music and songs for different feelings or experiences that you're going through in life. And again, the reason we love Psalms so much is because we're so much lamenting. Whether he's been betrayed by his best friend and he sings about it. Or he's committed sin with Bathsheba and he wants to, you know, he's so miserable, he sings about that to God. But God intends that all of your life will be wrapped up in God. And so, let's practice, all right? I'm going to give you a test, pop quiz. All right, we'll do two songs that we do, and I want you to think about which type it is. Why don't you leave that one up? Go ahead, Peter, let's do it, and see if, let's sing this. Let's sing it together briefly, and then we'll see if you got it. Psalm 84.
elsewhere. All right, that's Psalm 84. What do you think? What type of psalm or song might that be? Can I say it loud? Just Thanksgiving? Okay, what about anybody else? Adoration? Trust? Okay, good. Well, I have the microphone, so I win. So I don't know. And again, there'll be some disagreements among different scholars and commentators. Which is it? Is it a trust one? Is it an adoration one? I, I think it's a trust one. I, I think it's a, but I could be wrong, but I think it's a trust one. It's a proclamation of just, Lord, it's better than one day in your courts than a thousand. It's even better than Starbucks and coffee latte. It's better. Better to be here in your presence. All right, let's do the next one. One more pop quiz test. What do you think? Hallelujah psalm? Well, we haven't got to that yet, but it is a hallelujah psalm. That's true, but not quite. But it does, a piece of it does fit. Adoration, thanksgiving. Yeah, I think it belongs probably in that one. I, I think adoration, thanksgiving is probably where it belongs. But okay, we're not going to get crazy typing at all, but some are more clear than others. Now, we're going to do laments today. Now, laments are different because laments, now, let's get rid of this and go to the next one. Laments are about struggling and complaining to God about his absence or his apparent absence. Laments or complaints or songs or, or written like we sang earlier um, when my heart is overwhelmed. Life is not turning out as you hoped. And, have any of you found that out yet? I hope by junior high school, those junior high and high school students, who you found out that life does not turn out as you hoped. Anyway, I'm glad you're not God because my life would be a mess if it was. But laments are written when circumstances say, God is not trustworthy. It doesn't seem like God's love endures forever. As one friend said to me, Pete, I'm not in pain, I am pain. And in theology, there's two categories of the will of God that are sometimes talked about. There is the revealed will of God, which is, you know, seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added unto you, give it shall be given to you. These are revealed, it's very clear. But then there's something in theology called the hidden will of God. The hidden will of God is just that. It's, it's hidden. It's mysterious. And you don't know what's going on. And the hidden will of God you learn about when there's suffering. And you're wondering what could possibly be God's will in all this mess and everything going so bad. And somewhere in that there's something in the Bible calls or something called the hidden will of God. I, I like Bernard Anderson is a famous theologian on, on, on Psalms. And he writes about the laments. He says, God's sovereignty or his ruling of the universe, has a hiddenness which baffles human comprehension. And within us, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that walk through the valley, we are called to sing. I like that. Now, laments acknowledge something about life. Laments acknowledge that life is hard. 
life is sometimes brutal and life can be very mean. This is not, what, the Psalms of Lament are not for people who want to, oh, praise the Lord, everything's wonderful. That's not what the Psalms of Lament are about. They, are, they acknowledge the, the reality of what life is all about. It does not skirt difficult issues. It goes right into them. There's no pretending. Forget religiousness. That's out the window. As David and other psalmists wrestle their complaints and they bring them to God. And, uh, but the central theological issue is this word called hesed. It's a struggle with the love of God. Remember last week's word? Because you've got to learn this word hesed. It's, it's the central theological issue in the psalms, especially the laments. And the question is, does God really have hesed towards me? Is he really loyally loving? Now, remember that word, hesed. It's very, very important. Let me, let me just have you say it. We've got a number of weeks here in Psalms. And we're going to come back to hesed, the love of God, over and over again. So can we just say hesed once? You ready? Hesed. All right. Yeah. Hesed. Good. Now, remember, it comes from the stork. And the Hebrews watched the stork and how the storks dealt with their eggs. And they would lay their eggs and put it on the highest perch of a nest. And the mom and dad would so protect that little egg. And they might go 80 miles to find food. Because they knew the eggs were so vulnerable and weak and, and it could be killed so easily. And they, they, the way they were so lovingly loyal. And that word loving loyal, you'll notice, has two ideas. It's loyalty that's deep. God is deeply loyal to you. But there's also the sense of he's deeply impassionately in love with you. It's got the emotion. That's why no English one word can kind of get it all. But that's what this word hesed is. Kind of like that agape in the New Testament. But God's posture towards you is hesed. Now, God says it. his hesed is so great. It says, remember last week? It's higher than the heavens. It's so infinite. It's so overwhelming that it's, it's as far as the east is from the west. And God sets this loyal love, this hesed on human beings like you and me. Frail, weak, whose glory's like the grass. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. And yet... This eternal, infinite God has set this loyal love on you. And he's got the hairs in your head numbered. He knows the moment you, you're, you're, the, the, the egg and the sperm met in your mother's womb. He sees the end. And he has set this loyal love on you. It's kind of like he, he zoned in on you. And God says, my loyal love towards you will endure forever. It's not like the, remember the ostrich has a bunch of eggs, you know, in its nest and just pushes them out because it doesn't have room for all of them and get trampled on. That's not how God's posture towards you. It is, he has hesed towards you. He has loyal love to you. He is passionate for you. That is the struggle of the Psalms. Because as life goes on, life sometimes doesn't go the way we like. There is suffering. There's betrayal. There's loss. There's death. There's tragedy. Everything goes wrong. And you sit there and you say, well, if this is the hesed of God, I want to get out of here. And so you, if you read through the Psalms, I, just, I wrote down a few verses. Just put them down. You know, like, for example, in Psalm 69, 12, though David writes this, Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. So just imagine. Imagine if they were singing about... There's Louis in the back. Got you, Louis. Imagine if there's... Louis. Imagine if they're singing songs on Z100 about Louis. And what a jerk he is. And just, you know, the song of drunkards, they, they've made up these slanderous, critical comments about you. All over the city of New York. In fact, it goes national. How would you feel? You could be saying, oh, the love of God, bless you, Lord. No, I mean, you say, God, you know what? I'm the song of drunkards. But here's what David says. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love. 
in your great hesed, oh Lord, answer me. But he's crying out, he's lamenting because he's been slandered and misunderstood. And he, he's just trying to serve the God. Everything's going wrong. But he cries out on the basis, oh God, your hesed, your loyal love, answer me. Then go on, next one. Psalm 77, 8. Uh, David writes, has his unfailing love, or hesed, vanished forever? He's wondering, God, is your, where is it? And he's singing this. Has your unfailing love, your hesed, vanished? Has his promise failed for all time? And he's struggling. And he's bringing it to God and he's singing it. And the last one is Psalm 25, which is another famous psalm. And David writes, do, do, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Re so here he's got enemies who are apparently are triumphing over him. He's losing. You feel like that? Everything's going wrong. Lord, don't let my enemies triumph over me. Remember, O oh Lord, your great mercy and hesed. So he's bring, he, he, the Psalms of Lament are bringing back to God your hesed, your faithful love, your goodness, your loyalty, Lord. Remember it, for they are from of old. And even when you think of our sins, remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways according to your love. You know, we think of our sins and our past. We go, I, someone didn't want to come to church today, and I was saying, you know, I'm such a wretch. I've been, I've been rebellious, and I'm ashamed to come. And so you come and you're struggling. You got to lament, you're lamenting yourself. In the same way, we, oh, remember, Lord, not the sins of my youth, my rebellious ways, according to your chesed, your loyal love. And so laments are wrestling with this. And, and so you've got this range of emotions in lamenting and complaining. You've got kind of mild lamenting. And then you've got some laments, like Psalm 88, where the writer says, darkness is my closest friend. I mean, it's just... Psalm 88 is probably the utter pit of despair. There's very little, little hope in that psalm. So we got the whole range of where we are in a lamenting scheme here. But lamenting is when you're struggling. The odds appear to be against God. I mean, if you want to look at it, like if you're a gambling person, you know, you look at your life and you're saying, I'm looking around my circumstances, I'm looking externally what's happening in my life, and I'm not going to bet on the fact that God's love endures forever for me. That's when you're ready to complain and grieve to God. Now, what do you do when you have, when God does not answer your prayers and you have unresolved situations like this? What do you do with it? Now, some of us, we do this. I'm just not going to speak to God anymore. We just decide, I will not speak to God until this thing is resolved, until I feel like it, until I feel better. And until he sets up circumstances that I feel better, I will not praise him. In fact, I won't follow him either. I won't give him any money either. I'll just, I'm, I'm, I'm backing out. But, now, this is the key to maturing in Christ. David was, was obsessed with God, in a sense. He was just... And so, this struggling or complaining is the meeting place with God. It's the place where you go to God and you wrestle. You talk to God. It's a two-way relationship. It's a dialogue. And so, you commune with God what's going on. Where is your hesed and your loyal love? I can't see it, oh, Father. Deliver me. And then you have time for God to speak back to you. But, but it's, it's, it's basically you're saying, I'm, I'm coming to you, God, until hell freezes over. That's basically the attitude of the Lament Psalms. I am coming to you, God, until hell freezes. I am not leaving because I know that your hesed and your love endures forever. And I have a claim to that hesed. It's mine because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And I'm your son and I'm your daughter. And I'm staying here claiming that hesed, that loyal love. Now, we'll get to it in a second in Psalm 57. But this is serious communion with God. This is, this is serious conversation with God. But the result of serious communion and serious conversation with God is you get serious obedience. 
You're not going to get serious obedience unless you have serious conversations like this with God. You may have some superficial obedience, but it won't be serious. So we've got to embrace these laments and wrestle through them with God because it'll change us. Just, some of us have, you know, you have if you have children or if you're a teacher, you know that if you have a child that's very compliant their whole lives, you know you have a big problem. If the kid, yes, 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 whatever, 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 whatever. If the kid never disagrees with you as a parent, as they're growing up, doesn't have some rebelliousness to separate, doesn't struggle to say, why? You know you have a really big problem here. Because this kid is, is not developing a sense of who they are, a sense of self apart from you. It's unhealthy. In the same way, if you're a Christian that never struggles with God, you're probably not growing up either. Are you following me, everybody? If everything is, oh, praise him! Praise him! and you've been a believer now for 25 years, you're probably in the same spot you were in year number one. And again, the great critique of American Christianity is that we are, we are 100 miles wide and one inch deep. And I think part of it is we don't like this idea of lamenting. It's too painful. It's too bloody. It's too difficult. But if we don't walk through it, we will not mature and sing and really worship in everything. And so it is healthy to say to God, Lord, life does not seem right. It's a healthy thing to say. But the point is, you bring it to God. And that's what made David great. All right, let's go to Psalm 57. It's taking me a while to get here. And let's read this. I'm going to give you a real illustration of this, but I want to get to the text. Psalm, let's, read, let's, just, let's just try to read it together. Just Again, you, you've got to not just intellectually engage with it. You've got to let, experience it. So I've got a lot on you because I've been meditating on this for a while, but... All right, now you notice it starts with what's called the superscription on the top. It says, for the director of music, because these were songs to be sung. So it's like saying, okay, Peter wrote it. Uh, now, get everybody together over there to worship team. To the tune of Do Not Destroy, whatever that is. A mictum, whatever that is. When he had fled from the cave, from Saul into the cave. So, so again, I want to encourage you instrumentalists, choir people, how much we need you to, to, to dedicate yourself to be excellent in music and song and dance and, and instruments and, and you are artists to lead us to God, to help us get to God, because God's not gifted all of us in the same way. And we need you to move us, to help us get to God. So, they, he gives some instruction. Now, verse 1, let's read it. Have mercy on me, O my God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love, his hesed, and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet, I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your hesed, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. 
Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now, here's David. He is like the Osama bin Laden of his day, although he's totally innocent. He's been following God faithfully. He's in his 20s, probably, when he writes this. He's 1 Samuel 20, 22, around that time. Cave of Adullam and other places. He's running for his life. He's being hunted by the greatest army in the world. Could you imagine? He is hours, days, months away from death. His life being snuffed out. And so he is lamenting. He is complaining. He's trying to worship. He's struggling. That's what this song is. We have lots of psalms like that that he writes. But um, the great thing about these laments in the psalms is that no matter what you're going through today, what your struggles, or whether you're in high school, your, your sense of loss or sufferings or disappointments and where's God, whatever your external enemies are out there, or even maybe they're internal, that you can relate to this all oh, and, and just struggling with where is the love of God for me today? And so he starts out, well, I'll just put a little, little um, outline for you, for those of you who are into outlines. Because as you remember, David, he, um, for 10 to 13 years, he was running for his life. That's why so many of these psalms are, are laments and complaints. 10 to 13 years. That's a long time. And so he starts out by just pleading for mercy. Verses 1 to 3. Oh, have mercy on me, oh my God. Have mercy on me. And then he gives the reason he's crying out for mercy because he makes a decision. For in my soul, in you my soul takes refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So here's the picture. He says, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm making a choice to go to you. He's not running away. The psalms run to God in struggle. And David is absorbed with God. God, God is mentioned 22 times in these 11 verses. Uh, in pronoun or, or direct form. Because David is just, he's just God-saturated. No matter what's happening in his life, he just brings it to God. And so he says, I'm, I'm God, I'm going into the shadow of your wings. Now picture these, these enormous wings encompassing a little egg, that's you. It's just over you. Lord, I, I take refuge in the shadow of your wings to protect me against the winds and the storms that are seeking to engulf me. So God, have mercy on me, for I take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Then he goes on, he goes, I cry out to you, God Most High, who fulfills his purpose for me. Verse 2, I don't know what your purpose is, God, for my life, because David may die next month. He doesn't know. So God, I cry out to you, God, you are Most High. You're awesome. You're, you're great. And you'll notice the word, heavens four times in these 11 verses he's always looking to the god of the heavens and the sense of this awesomeness and the infinity and the, the majesty of god here he is in a cave running for his life but he is wrestling to get up to that greatness of god in the heavens and he goes god i know you've got a purpose for me verse two and you're going to fulfill it whether i die next month or not but i cry out to you god who fulfills his purpose for me it's hidden from me right now but i cry out to you and then he goes on verse three he sends from heaven and saves me. What's he send? Two things. He sends hesed and faithfulness. He sends his love and faithfulness. He, and this is poetry. He talks about God's hesed like it's an angel, like a divine messenger. God sends his hesed to you, to you, to you. And his faithfulness, God, you send it from heaven with my name marked on it to protect me and guide me. Now, things aren't going well for David. So he cries out for mercy, and now he begins his complaint. I love his complaint. It's so rich. But David's got a great sense that even though he's on the portals of death, verse 4, I'm in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears. Now just picture the lying, lying down among beasts. Uh, Peter Craig is a great commentator on, on David. He writes this. These words of David feeling like he's lying down and surrounded by beasts. 
evoke the terror of someone who is powerless but surrounded. Have you ever felt like that? You're just surrounded by evil that is seeking to destroy you. And there is no avenue for escape for David at this moment. And this is written for all those who feel so miserable, but what's around them is like the proportion of beasts. And here's David. I'm lying down among ravenous beasts. Their teeth are spears and arrows. I mean, that's pretty intense. And at this point, in verse 5, he kind of breaks out. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And, and many, many scholars believe that this is like a, a refrain. And maybe smoke comes up. You've got to imagine, they're all, this is meant to be sung. And so maybe the smoke machine kicks in, you know, for the glory of the Lord in the temple. Or maybe there's all these trumpets that, you know, before that, that is sung. Or perhaps the choir just sings, just breaks us out. You know, we don't really quite know. But all of a sudden, he's, he writes a song, so in the midst of it, he's struggling. But be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And you've got this, you know, he, he gets out of his own personal problems. And he kind of breaks out of it. And he moves out of his personal concern to this concern for the glory of God. God, somehow, be exalted in all of this. Somehow, God, do your will in all of this. And he's wrestling, be exalted, O God, above the nations. Now, it's, it's that wrestling as he's, you know, verse 6, he goes back, they, they spread a net for my feet and I was bowed down in distress and they dug a pit. He, he's aware this danger is so great, he is on the inches of everything falling apart. Do you ever feel like that? It's like, God doesn't show up, but you're done. But he's wrestling. Now let me tell a story. This guy is from uh, um, Jerry Sitzer. I've mentioned him before. And uh, he recently came out with another book and so I, I, I purchased it and I read it because I've been following him for really quite a few years now. Um, and you'll remember, you'll, some of you will remember the story when I shared it. But now he's written now, just a recent book as he's reflected on some lament and tragedy that he had in his life that's been now 10 years. But uh, here's what he writes. My, my wife and I had, they had four children, two boys and two girls. She turned 40 when she gave birth to John, our youngest. Our friends said that God had given us the $2 million family. Both she and I felt like we were living on top of the world. We were experiencing the bliss of knowing and doing the will of God. The bliss came to a sudden end in the fall of 1991. A drunken driver driving 85 miles an hour on a lonely stretch of highway in rural Idaho jumped his lane and collided with our minivan as we were returning from a powwow at a nearby native Indian reservation. My wife was killed. My four-year-old daughter was killed and my mother was killed. And our good friend Grace in the car was also killed, who was visiting us. And he writes about how he basically was on the highway, this desolate highway, for a few hours with his dead family members until the police came. And uh, he says, this experience thrust me into a permanent state of dizziness. He compares it to like coming out of surgery, and you're all drugged up. And I had trouble regaining my balance for a long time. I had assumed that my marriage to Linda was the will of God and that our family of six was the will of God and that the happy, stable, prosperous life we enjoyed together was the will of God. We were, as so many said, the ideal family. How could God allow such a tragedy to happen? What's interesting is that when they went to court, the guy was not convicted. He was released on top of all that. I could not believe that God had suddenly changed his mind about what he willed for us, a good marriage and a healthy family. How then could my life as a single father of three traumatized children also be the will of God? The accident forced me to reconsider my assumptions about God's will. Did God's plan for the good, did God's, did God plan only the quote, good life for me? If so, I wondered how I could integrate suffering into my understanding of God's will. 
Or did God plan something very different for me, something still good, but also hard and painful at the same time? If so, I had to face the prospect that my approach to the will of God was entirely mistaken. And he says, this suffering, he writes about, crashed into his life like a meteor, devastating the landscape out of nowhere. And he writes about in a book how he just started to read the Bible with new eyes. And uh, the beauty of the book and his writings and his previous book was he laments. He is wrestling with God. And he talks about the central issue was, is God in control and is God hesed? He, didn't, he doesn't use the word hesed. Is God good or is he not? And his wrestling with God, he writes all this stuff about what God did in his own soul. Not that he understands the hidden will of God because he does not. But out of it, he realized, he, this book is called, in fact, about 20 people asked me what's the title of the book, the will, the will of God is a Way of Life. His conclusion is that the issue for him is how to respond to God in the present moment. That what is he going to do? Am I going to do the will of God right now? Not the future, now, today. Am I going to follow God's will today? And all kinds of revelation came out of it. Just, just tremendous. We'll come back to him. Now, in verse 4 to 6, he's got this complaint. Now, David gets out. David does get delivered. He becomes king. We, you know, we know the rest of the story. Jerry Sitzer didn't get his family back. And the truth is, as we go through losses and sufferings and disappointments and deaths and don't get jobs or into programs or PhDs or whatever, uh, the reality is uh, there are some losses that last. So we make mistakes that uh, have consequences. But nonetheless... David doesn't know what's going to happen. He makes a decision in verse 7. He exhorts himself to praise. And we see this over and over again in Psalms. David writes, verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. If you are in Jesus, you're his son or daughter, there's something in you that does want to sing. Even though you may be crushed right now, the Holy Spirit in you, there's something in you that does say, yes, it may be barely alive right now, but it's there. David makes a willful choice with the mind. I will, my heart is steadfast, I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. He's waking himself up. Come on. Get up, soul. Awake harp and lyre. He goes, I need instruments. I will awaken the dawn. Now that word for dawn does not mean he's getting up to have a morning quiet time, although it might mean partially that. But it's deeper than that one. He goes, I will awaken the dawn. What it means is, dawn is a, is a symbolic in scripture of that, of God. I will awaken the dawn. God, your deliverance. Something new, a new day. It's a new day. The sun comes up. Something different. God's alive. God's active. God's a deliverer. God's a God of breakthroughs. He goes, I will awaken the dawn. He's calling out for a deliverance from God. Awake, and he sings. And he, he's calling on God, awaken the Breakthrough, oh God. I love that verse. I will awaken the dawn. And... Um, so I need you, Lord. Then verse 9, as, he, as he's like, begins to sing, verse 9, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. And he starts like, now he kind of gets wrapped up in praise. Now, now he gets out of his personal issues. Now he's praising the Lord among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your hesed. Now he's thinking about the, oh, the loving kindness of God. He's in a cave. He's running for his life. Everything's going wrong. And he starts singing about the greatness of the hesed of God that reaches to the heavens. It's so great. And your faithfulness reaches to the sky. And uh, it's, really, he, he begins to express gratitude for the loyal love of God, even though he doesn't know where it's all going. And he begins to sing about it. And as he's singing about it, he's getting, it's like, I'll be honest, I, 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 the more I meditate on this, it gets, it's, your, your soul just can't absorb it anymore. He's in the pit of despair in one verse, and a few verses later, he's in high worship as he's reflecting on the hesed and the loyal love of God for a sinner like him and a rebel like him. 
it's kind of like, you know, he, he's anticipating God doing something. And that great day. And so, it's like Joseph in, in, in Genesis 50. Remember everything went wrong for Joseph? His brother sold him out. 13 years, running for his life, you know, he's a slave, ends up in Egypt, second in command, and he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And with David, I don't know what's going on here, but I know that God has got a great plan, he's working out through history, and God, I will sing of your great love. And there, there may be some, some pain in that, but he is singing of the great hesed and faithfulness of God in the midst of it all. And then he closes in the verse 11, be exalted, O God, again, above the heavens. God, let it go, let, let the earth be exalted above it all. Let your glory be over all the earth. And his whole mind is filled with the thought of God. And, and uh, let the resplendent majesty of God, the glory of God, fill the earth. And uh, thy will be done, Lord. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. Let your glory be over all the earth. And he just, worship is just taking him up. And so you've got this lament where he's mixed in. All right? He's got praise. He's got struggle. All right, let's do this. Um, now, Psalm 57 is used a lot in Easter Sunday services. Some of you come from church backgrounds. And uh, because we celebrate Christ is risen today. Easter Sunday, we say, Christ is risen. Yes, Christ is risen. And uh, it comes from that verse, verse 8. It's the verse is reason churches use it. I will awaken the dawn. And it's that sense of we wait for the great dawn when Jesus returns. I, will Lord, I may die today, Lord, but I will awaken the dawn that, uh, that you're going to fill the earth, God, with your glory. There'll come a day, Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, you are Lord. And so I will awaken the dawn. I will proclaim it whether I'm delivered earthly right now or later, I will call out to you. And so we join like David. God, rise up. And David just starts singing. Even though in circumstances, nothing's changed yet. Lord, your love endures forever. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. And here's what Jerry Sitzer, here's how he sums up his book. And worship team, I want you to come on forward, all right? Here's what he says faith is. As he reflects on the last 10 years of his life, he's still a single parent. He says faith means that although life does not appear to be turning out the way we had hoped, we believe that God's hidden will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. So we continue to endure, to love, to serve, and to worship. We resist the temptation to turn bitter, to seek revenge, to view the world cynically, and to whine about how hard life is, although these are all temptations. In short, he writes, we train our eyes to see signs of God's redemptive work. So we train our eyes to see where is there something good that God's going to bring out of this great horror, loss, suffering, and tragedy. Because we train our eyes to see God's redemptive work and we wait patiently, he writes, for God's will to be accomplished. Now, God's not entrusted me with that level of suffering, and I thank God for that. He knows what we can handle. He says, he'll never give us beyond what we can handle. But I want to invite you to stand with me. And I would like you to think for a minute about your laments, your complaints, your losses, your sufferings. And I want us to bring them to God together. And we're going to spend a little time in worship right now. And, but let this be your prayer, praise, response to God. And the instrumentalists and the choir and Linda are going to lead us and carry us to the presence of God.